May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. It's a strange and wonderful experience uh, getting to pick up my son from school every single afternoon. Now, some people, they stay at home, they wait, uh, their children ride the bus, and so they just wait and they come home. Uh, some adults wait in the kiss and ride line at the school waiting to pick up their kid. But if you live in the neighborhood, there are a few of us, every afternoon we walk from our houses to the school and we stand around on the school property waiting for our children to come out. And it didn't take long as they th these things go for most of the other parents at the school, parents in the neighborhood, to figure out what I do for a living. Partly because we have a lot of people from the church who live in the neighborhood and, and wonderfully they talk about their pastor. Sometimes I don't know if it's always good things, but they talk. Some of you talk. But also there have been more than a few occasions when I've arrived to pick up my son Elijah dressed like this, not with this jacket, but in all black, wearing my clergy collar. Sometimes I, I have to rush right from a funeral to get over to the school to pick him up in the afternoon. So very quickly, people figured out what I do for a living. And because people in the community know what I do for a living, and because we gather there almost every day, over the last two and a half years, I've had a lot of wonderful and weird questions asked of me in the afternoon on the school property about Jesus, which I don't know if I'm allowed to actually talk about Jesus on the school property, but I do it anyway. A few months ago, someone came up and they said, let me ask you a question. What's the difference between a baptism and a christening? What's the difference between a baptism and a christening? And I put my hand in my pocket and I answered the question. Tune in maybe six months from now and maybe I'll answer that question in worship one Sunday morning. A few weeks ago, someone came up and they said, Father, my, my wife and I, we've had this argument about whether something's in the Bible or not. Could you, could you answer that for us? And I thought, man, I love being called father by someone who's not my own child. <laughs> but just this week, just this past week, I was out on the lawn after school waiting to pick up my son, talking with some of the other parents, and, and I was sharing with them, sharing with some of the parents, uh, the challenge that I feel about coming up with something to say on Christmas Eve. You know, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. We sing that later today. What does a preacher say on Christmas Eve? So I was lamenting about not really knowing what to say when one of the people in our neighborhood said, well, I know what you should tell your church. And I thought, oh, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Here we go. Manna from heaven. I said, what should I say on Christmas Eve? And they said, you should tell your people to be good and do good. Isn't that what faith is all about? Be good and do good. That's the Christmas message. So what I said was, thank you. That was really helpful. <laughs> what I wanted to say was, oh, did you come up with that all on your own? <laughs> let, let me get a piece of paper and a pen. I should write this down. My people are going to love hearing that on Christmas. Be good, do good. If that's all the church has to say, then everyone in the neighborhood would already be here because all of us already believe that. Be good, do good. Our faith is more than just being good and doing good. And yet we love explanations. We love uh, things being tied up neatly in a bow. But on this day, in this place, God gives us more than that. More than we can handle, more than we can explain, more than we can fathom. God gives us more. 
Jeremy Begbie is a theologian from Duke, and he wrote a book recently called Abundantly More. He's an art historian, and it's, it's a book all about art and faith and the modern world, and he says that people like us, people who show up for church on Advent 4, even when it's Christmas Eve, we've been told by the world again and again to catch up with all that's going on. Because the modern world, with all of its gadgets and gizmos aplenty, will help us control, predict, explain, and understand everything. Nearly every one of us in this room today have something in our pocket that can connect us with a little bit of everything all of the time. If you want certainty, the world tells us that we can have it. We can stand at the summit of achievement. We can gain enlightenment. In short, Begbie argues in his book that all of us are captivated by reductionism. We want believe that we can fit everything we need into a box, not unlike the box of gifts that might be waiting under the tree. That we can fit everything we can into a box. Somehow, we've taken all of these mysterious realities and we've substituted them with shadow and shallow explanations. Because this means that as we grow, we think everything will expand, but everything actually shrinks. We believe that the more we understand, the grander the vistas of life will become. But what happens is everything just becomes so compartmentalized, so boring, that life just becomes one thing after another. Be good. Do good. If it were that easy, if it were that simple, we would have no need of the church. We would have no need of music. No need of art, and we certainly would have no need of preachers because everything would already be as it ought to be. But I don't know about you. The world looks pretty dark to me these days. Things are not as they ought to be. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with being good and doing good, save for the fact that we're mostly bad and we're mostly selfish. When all is said and done, every person in this room, preacher included, we've all done something we should not have done. We've all avoided doing the good we should have done. In other words, we're all on the naughty list. You know, some of the most horrific things in history have been done in the name of the greater good. Over and over, again, we take things we simply do not understand, things that are mysterious, we reduce them to something that we can manage, often at the expense of other people. No matter how much we want to reduce and explain and simplify, God then shows up with Advent. God comes with Christmas. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us. Let us find our rest in thee. The incarnation. God in the flesh. What a mystery. Perhaps an even greater mystery than that of Easter. You know, on Easter, God resurrects Jesus from the dead. That's, of course, weird and bizarre and not easily understood. But Easter falls into categories of things we would kind of already hope for, things we would yearn for. Who among us would not yearn for the power of resurrection to know that death is not the end, but the incarnation? Is that what we hope and hoped for? I mean, it's one thing to place our faith in the resurrection of the dead, to be reunited with those we love and even those we hate after we die. 
But it's another thing entirely to want God, the author of the cosmos, to become a baby. Who in the world thought this up? It's a mystery. Advent and Christmas is the annual reminder that we cannot fit God in a box. Not even a manger can contain God. Jesus refuses all of the limitations we place on him. The Spirit destroys the restrictions offered through our reductionism. God has more in store for us. Just think about Zechariah. Oh, Zechariah, he had it all figured out. He was a good and faithful priest, committed to his duties, praying in the temple. He and his wife Elizabeth were righteous before God. That is, until the angel shows up with the promise they had been praying for, and Zechariah can't believe it. So you know what God does? God shuts him up for nine months. Let that be a warning to you when you believe God can or can't do something. Nine months. Nine months of silence for old Zechariah as his wife's belly grows day after day. And then the time comes for her to give birth to their son. And she says, I want to name him John. And everyone is confused. This is a great little bit in Scripture. It says the whole village is confused. They say, what kind of name is John? Love you, John Turnbull. <laughs> but, what, but, but what kind of name is John? I mean, John? Elizabeth, you don't even have anyone named John in your family. Why would you name your kid John? That's what the women say to her. It's an interesting thing to think about because Elizabeth wants to name him John. That's the name that the angel Gabriel told Zechariah, you will name your son John. But Elizabeth wasn't there for the conversation. And her husband has been mute for nine months. He hasn't been able to tell her the name of the baby. How did she know to name him John? What do we want to do with that mystery? Nevertheless, the women say, Oh, why do you want to name him John? You don't know any, but you don't have any Johns in your family. And they go to Zechariah and they said, Zechariah, they know he can't talk. Can you believe your wife? She wants to name your son John. Have you ever heard of a name like that, John? And his mouth opens for the first time in nine months. And he says, name him John. Praise the Lord. He praises God. And he starts to sing a song. We call it the Benedictus in the church. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Mary had her own song to sing, the Magnificat. Now Zechariah gets his own. It's a song of more. It's a song of more. God does more. God gives more. God is more than we can fathom or imagine. Just as God promised long ago, salvation is at hand so we can worship without a care in the world because the light is coming. And then Zechariah takes this baby, this little baby boy into his arms and he starts to sing just to him. He says, and you, my boy, will be a prophet you will prepare the way of the Lord. You will show the people the more that God has in store. By the tender mercies of God, the dawn from on high will break upon us. The light will shine in the darkness. In time, John will grow. People will start to call him the Baptist. He will go out preaching in the wilderness, preaching about God's more. He says things like, I'm going to baptize you with water, but one's going to come and baptize you with fire. I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. And the people who hear him preach begin to see and know that God 
has more. Claire, can you go to the picture? This is a painting that I love. I have a, a print of it in my office. I brought it here into the sanctuary today, but I wanted to have it on the screen so you all could see it. Uh, this is done by a pretty famous artist by the name of Norman Rockwell, if you've all ever heard of him before. Often does these picturesque sort of Americana moments, usually like a family at a table, this sort of thing. But this is a, a not often seen image by Rock. Rockwell doesn't do a lot with church, not a lot with faith. But this, this is one of my favorite paintings. It's called Lift Up Thine Eyes from the Psalms. Lift up thine eyes. The thing that I love most about this, before we get into it a little bit, is just that this, I think, was painted in 1957, but it could be a painting that was done today. If you take the people in the foreground and you just take their newspapers and briefcases and instead put iPhones and iPads in their hand, it could be a picture from today. The downcast looks of the people in the foreground going about as if Everything the world has to offer is just one more thing after another. But the whole image draws our attention upward. Lift up thine eyes. You see the doves flying above this alcove. The doves, always a sign of the Holy Spirit, that God is up to something, drawing our attention upward, not down here in the muck and mire, not down here in the shadows of darkness, but something more. And then my favorite, the door. The door is open. And from the door of this church, there comes a glow. Now, I know church isn't perfect. I know we mess things up all the time. But there's something more that the church has to offer than the world does. Whether it's our singing or our praying or our laughing or our tears, the joys we share with each other, the sorrows that we share with each other, that is a glimpse of the more God has in store right there in that door. Don't you want to see what's in there? Or do you want to just stay there on the sidewalk with everybody else? This is a painting to me of Advent. When John says the dawn from on high will break upon us, that is the dawn coming through the door. The light is coming of God's more. And maybe, maybe that's why all of us are here this morning. Now, again, it's Sunday, but it's also Christmas Eve. All of you could have slept in today. You didn't have to come to church. We're going to do this again at 4 o'clock. Kids are going to be wearing all their costumes. It's going to be great. We're going to do it again at 8, Christmas Eve, reading all the scriptures, singing all the great songs. We're going to have church two more times that you didn't have to come this morning, but you did. And I think it's because you know God's got more. I think that after hearing year after year that all the things that the world has to offer, all the explanations, all the reductions, maybe people like us were looking for something more. Because all the scriptures, all the sermons, all the songs... They're all about helping us to see the light that's coming through that door, a glimpse of the light that shines in the darkness. So, Dr. Seuss got it right. Maybe Christmas, the Grinch thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen.